Toss to White. He's in! Patriots win the Super Bowl! Brady has his fifth! What a comeback! What is up? It is Friday, February 10th, 2016, early a.m. in Buffalo, New York. I guess the only place in the eastern United States that didn't have a blizzard this week. Uh, Dry concrete in front of my house. Freezing cold, but no snow. Uh, It is a Steve's solo show today. Uh, Don started his new job this week and needed to kind of take the week to get his feet under him and get settled and it's getting closer and closer to the point I think where we're going to kind of be able to get it on a schedule and get in a groove but we do have two great interviews today so I figured I'd let Don do his thing record the, the interviews we had scheduled and just do a quick intro a quick book club a quick outro and get this up and kind of get the season going, try to try to start, get into a flow as we've been kind of more every other week instead of every week uh, for the last couple of months. So we're going to try to get into a flow and get on an every week schedule. On the podcast today, though, besides me jibber-jabbing, uh, we have two guests. We have Josh Levine, the host of the Hang Up and Listen podcast and one of the executive editors at Slate.com. Uh, Josh is going to join us. We talk with Josh who's a New Orleans, Louisiana native. Uh, Josh and I talk about it, what it was like to watch the Super Bowl through the eyes of a Saints fan. As the Falcons, one of our most hated rivals, uh, blew an unprecedented lead <laughs> to the Patriots. Um, and I was also in the unique position of being someone who hates the Falcons, but being surrounded by people who hate the Patriots for the same reasons that I hate the Falcons. Uh, we get into that. We also talk to Josh about what it's like to have a podcast that's hosted by a website uh, that also serves people's political needs and how the sports and politics of that website intersect and what his team at Awful Announcing, or excuse me, Awful Announcing, at Slate uh, plans to do about it. Awful announcing was on the mind because our second interview is with a guy named Fred Siegel, a really interesting guy. Uh, he's a lawyer from Miami who started a Twitter handle called Old Takes Exposed or Freezing Cold Takes. And what Fred does is uh, basically put people on blast who, uh, like for example, during the Super Bowl at 28 to 3, uh, start talking about putting Jimmy Garoppolo in or blowing up the Patriots or Tom Brady's too old. And then when all of those things turn to fools, tweets, he collects them and posts them. And he has a website now on the comeback, uh, which is part of awful announcing the comeback.com slash fusion cold takes, uh, where he does articles. There's a really cool one I retweeted today uh, about the Buster Douglas Mike Tyson fight is it's the anniversary of that fight today, and uh, he 
highlight some of the uh, freezing cold takes that people made about Buster Douglas before the fight. And we go into kind of, you know, what's fair, you know, when is it not fair, uh, what's fun, who gets mad, who doesn't get gets mad, his interaction with people that he's exposed, whose takes he's exposed. It's a really cool site and really cool interview. Uh, in the middle of those, we'll do a real quick book club update. We'll look back at a uh, past book club book of the month, as we've been doing while we wait for the next round of books. Uh, and then I will close off the show uh, with one last thing. So, with that being said, instead of just uh, blabbing to myself, we'll get into the interview. We'll have Josh Levine on in a second. Before we do that, uh, I just want to remind everyone that you can find our podcast on SoundCloud, www.soundcloud.com slash sportsdaskcasters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters. You can find Don Congratulate him on the new job at Don Lake Sports. And you can email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Especially if I owe you a book, I have a stack of them with addresses attached on the podcast table just waiting to go to the post office. Uh, so that is coming. Uh, also, I wanted to mention the Lonely End of the Rink podcast. You can find that also on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash lonelyrinkpod, and on Twitter at lonelyrinkpod or email LonelyRinkPod at gmail.com. Uh, on that podcast this week, we have a guy whose name I don't even know yet. I interview him at 4 o'clock, and I, I don't know his name. But apparently he broke off from the uh, Pittsburgh sports media establishment to create some kind of Pittsburgh media subscription service. Uh, so we'll find out about that. Last week on the show, uh, we had Michael Russo, who covers the Minnesota Wild. Uh, for the Tribune there, and also had Rob O'Gara, uh, formerly of Yale Hockey, and uh, now of the Providence Bruins, even played four games uh, with the Boston Bruins. So that's where you can find all the stuff we're working on. But with that said, we're going to take a break and come back with Josh Levine from Slate. <laughs> All right, our next guest is from NOLA and is a graduate of Brown. He's a writer and executive editor for Slate Magazine and is the host of the Hang Up and Listen podcast. He's making his second appearance on the show today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Josh Levine. What's going on, Josh? Thank you very much, and I feel the warmth come through the phone. I appreciate it. I have to know... How much of the New Orleans in you was coming out during the game on Sunday? Really complicated emotional experience that game because I actually don't dislike the Patriots in any kind of real visceral sense, which I think is uncommon for people who aren't Patriots fans. I find them to be an incredibly amusing villain and one that I am grateful for. I find I find their villainy to be um, just a fun and delightful part of the sports rooting experience, just very harmless. And um, the Falcons, as you know, though, that's different, man. 
that gets that gets to the heart of uh, who we are. Now there's a villain. As people and as uh, as sports fans, as uh, residents of the great state of Louisiana. But um, I don't know. I guess maybe maybe I've been away from home too long. I'm getting soft. I like certainly don't hate this iteration of the Falcons as as much as I did of you know like the Chris Chandler, Bob Christian era. You know, I'm in interest, an interesting position, being someone who lives in Buffalo but has been a Saints fan for almost 30 years now in the sense that everyone around me, everyone I care about, everyone I loved, really, hates the Patriots for basically all the same reasons that I hate the Falcons. Sure. Um, and yet, here I was at that at that spot on Sunday where I decided. I talked to my wife. I said, "You know, it's, we we have a we have a little daughter who's she's less than one, and my brothers weren't in town. So it's like, you know, what, let's just stay home on Sunday." I said, "I'm not going to be in the mood, uh, to to be in the middle of this rooting against the Patriots thing, you know, when I'm going to want to root so hard. You know, I mean, the Falcons are my my bo- if I were to rank every team in sports, they'd be the bottom." I said, <laughs> "So I don't I don't want to be." I don't want to be that like I don't want to be the villain at the party because I'm rooting against rooting for the Patriots for this reason. So she's like, yeah, that's fine. So we'll just use Paula as an excuse, you know. She's got to go to bed, whatever. We'll we'll stay home. I swear to God, our house was a morgue for like I don't think I said a word from seven to nothing until twenty eight to twelve, and I finally said. What was that stat they put up like five minutes ago? Ninety-two and zero. Every team is ninety-two and zero that's had a twenty-five point lead or whatever the lead was heading into the fourth quarter. I said, I said, is it possible that this could be the day? And my wife said, "This is what she said," and it was very, very wife of her. She said, "Well, if anyone could do it, wouldn't it be the Patriots?" Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? And I said, "What an innocent question!" Yeah, I said, "Well, you might be right." <laughs> but then I went on with this long, unnecessary sports take of, "Of well, yeah, well, the Patriots." But I mean, have you seen these Patriots today? They're making all these mistakes. You know, got too involved in it. And she's like, "Yeah, but they're the Patriots," and she was right. So, but it was an interesting day for me, for sure. Well, I would. I have a couple things to say. Number one, I feel like for people who aren't from New Orleans, aren't from Atlanta. The Atlanta Falcons are not a franchise generally that invites a strong emotional response. No, I think of the average relevant. American mm-hmm. or even average NFL fan. I wrote a piece the first time the Panthers made the Super Bowl where I think it's changed a little bit now because the franchise has a bit more kind of character and personality around Cam Newton. But like in the Jake DeLome era, this is a team that was basically like replacement level opponent like they had no identity nobody knew anything about them or cared about them i don't feel like the falcons are that far off from that so i feel like the way that most people viewed the super bowl going in is that it's an entirely a referendum on the patriots in the end it sort of turned out that the falcons were the foil right they're just kind of in the background of this amazing comeback story and tom brady and bill belichick getting anointed as the greatest ever in their respective position. So I think the in the end, maybe the Falcons are who everyone thought they were, which is not much. 
<laughs> not much to be uh, to be accounted for. But uh, I'm in this weird kind of position of of being a uh, you know a Saints fan from New Orleans and having all the kind of hometown affinities and pride around it. But also, I'm a New York Mets fan, and so I can relate to you on that level. It's like the weirdness of being kind of implicated and are involved in this rivalry from afar. And like Mets fans have all these complicated feelings about the Yankees, which I just don't care about. I just grew up (laughs) being somebody who liked, you know, Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden and Hojo. And I just loved the Mets. And so I didn't put that in contrast with the Yankees at all. The Yankees just weren't on my radar. Don't care about the Yankees. Don't feel like any sort of, little brother complex but as a Mets fan you're sort of expected to have this like intense emotional response around that rivalry so I just haven't been able to relate on that level with with that rivalry well you know it's interesting you say that too because my wife was trying to understand my hate for the Falcons a little bit better on Sunday since it just it came up and she's like okay I can understand the they're in the Saints division part she's like but I get the Bills side better because they are so thoroughly dominated by Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And they have these scandals hanging over them. She's like, I can understand how they would be hateable. But for you as a Saints fan, didn't you even say to me that in the Peyton and Breeze era, the Saints have been generally very successful against them? And, uh, you know, why? But why? She just couldn't understand. And I I said, you know, I think that when I first became a Saints fan in 1987... There was the 49ers, right? But they were they were this really respectable beacon of rival. They were this like like I couldn't find a reason to hate Joe Montana or even Steve Young. And as frustrating as it was watching Steve Young, uh, because he he was the kind of guy who's similar maybe to Cam Newton, where you were always so close to getting him, but then he somehow got away, and that's very frustrating. Uh, but I just never developed a, a real hate for them because I had a respect maybe. Uh, and the Falcons were this peer. Then that I thought were very similar to my team where they weren't in Super Bowls and they didn't win at this grand scale. And then they had this flamboyant, crazy athlete in Deion Sanders and they became really hateable in that era because I felt like whenever the Saints played them, we should beat them because they're not the 49ers. They're not better than us. And then every time it didn't work out, it, it increased the hate. And when you multiply that over 30 years of we should beat them every time they're not the 49ers they're not better than us that's where i think the hate really grew for me and why they are the number one of hate teams i guess yeah i i agree with the latter part of what you just said it's sort of like the rivalry between you know whether it's louisiana and mississippi or mississippi and alabama about like who's like 49th in literacy and who's 50th. It's like you you want somebody else to be at the bottom. So like even if you're um, really bad, you just want somebody to be able to make fun of and hold things over. And so I think that being at the bottom of the NFC West, so the 49ers actually had the you know benefit of being in the West, so they got to hold that over us. Right. We were in this like uh, mis- misnamed division. So, yeah, I mean, neither franchise is historically successful, and so we're sort of peers in that regard. I think part of it is also that Louisiana and Georgia are both big college football states, and so there's a little bit of the emulation of a college rivalry between the Saints and, and the Falcons, 
um, you, you'd sort of see kind of similar heatedness and similar, like, tra- you know, traditions among the fan bases. It feels, like, very collegiate to me in that way and, and the way that NFL um, rivalries often don't. But I still definitely manage to have a dislike for the 49ers. You know, there was a game in the Dome, I remember if it was in the late 80s or early 90s, when the Saints were really good and yet still kind of never quite able to get over the hump against the 49ers. And there was this play where Jerry Rice had this long catch and was running into the end zone and actually dropped the ball before he crossed the goal line, but the refs didn't call it and they didn't review it or anything. And it just felt like the 49ers get all the breaks. The refs love them. You know, nobody would ever deign to allow the Saints to get a victory over this exalted franchise. So I had some resentment there. Yeah, I think maybe... I know there was some resentment. Like I remember in 2000, uh, the 2000 season, when the Saints played the 49ers in New Orleans. I think that was the last year of the NFC West. And the Saints played the 49ers early in the run that they had, the first run that they had under Haslett that would lead them to the division that year. And there was uh, they beat them pretty pretty handily in the Dome. And there was a play-action pass touchdown from... Blake to Horn. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching the ball kind of sail into the air. The really high arcing jet yeah, like that. Yeah, and just kind of you so you get a second to like watch it arc and land perfectly into Joe Horn's hands, who's this also relatively newcomer to the scene. And I just remember like thinking of it as a turning point and kind of feeling like, Oh, this finally we're gonna put the forty ers in our rear view mirror and we're going to focus just on the Rams now, and uh, they're going to emerge kind of as the number one rival for a bit. And I guess there was never a time in the NFC West run, which ended either that year or the next year, whatever it was, that I kind of worried about them. So I guess it just kind of ended on such a, a warm feeling that whatever mm-hmm. resentment I had just never had a chance to build up again. And I kind of just instead look back uh, about remembering just kind of the respect I had for them. But that's like a weird rivalry that I think folks don't remember existed just because of the weird geography of the NFC West. Right. And also maybe the 49ers didn't realize that it was a rivalry. <laughs> right. It was, it was only coming from the direction of the Saints toward the 49ers. But there were those years, you know, the Jim Mora years when the Saints had such a great defense and were, you know, had great records, you know, in the late 80s, where that was like a legitimately great game every year yeah. where 87 um, and, it's, and it's an interesting matchup yeah. of you know styles yeah absolutely uh one last thing on this and we'll move on to a different topic one thing that i i think i tweeted the other day is i have great pride in knowing that if you look at the last seven years of nfc south football uh three of the four teams have made the super bowl three of the four teams had dream seasons and we're the only team that finished it and that's just incredibly satisfying to me. You know, we all got a crack. Tampa hasn't had a crack just yet. They they had their dream season a little bit earlier in the in the run. I think it was maybe even the first year of the NFC South. And they finished that, and great for them. Put them aside for a second. The other three teams, we've had dream seasons. Carolina was 15-1 last year. They got to 17-1 before they lost the Super Bowl. Couldn't finish it. 
Atlanta had this dream season. Their quarterback wins the MVP. They have a 25-point lead in the Super Bowl. They can't finish it. And then in that same context, the Saints in 2009 went 13-0 and before losing the last three, won the two playoff games, including an overtime winner in the NFC Championship game, and then had a lead in the fourth quarter against Peyton Manning. And Peyton Manning had the ball in his hands uh, with a chance to tie that game, and we finished it. Tracy Porter picked it off. And ran it in, and we finished that game. We finished our dream season. And I just have a ton of pride about that for whatever reason. Yeah. Did did you think that the Robert Alford pick was like just exactly like the Tracy Porter one? That's like the one thing that was crossing my mind. Like the yes. plays looked exactly the same mm-hmm. as far as like a guy jumping in front of a crossing route and almost the same distance down the field it was like a very strong sense memory for me for me there when he was running it back but that was only in the second quarter um i don't feel the same sort of pride in other teams failures like (laughs) lsu losing every year to alabama like makes me mad and i really want lsu to beat alabama like that's probably the game in any sport where I have like the most emotional investment, it's the one where I really look forward to and I get pissed every year that it just doesn't happen for LSU to, to beat Nick Saban. But I don't care that Alabama lost to Clemson. That doesn't make me happy. Like that like I it almost makes it would make it better for LSU to beat them if Alabama would just be completely indomitable and nobody could you know, take them down, and then, you know, the Tigers would finally be the the team to do it. So it just, I don't know, that just doesn't really bring me me joy to have a team that isn't my team defeat the rival. That's probably a that's probably a statement of your mental capacity over mine. Probably, probably puts you ahead of me. I'm a little bit more twisted, I guess. Sportscaster here with Josh Levine from Slate. Move on from the Super Bowl, and I was really interested in talking to you about this because... I was looking over for the last couple of hours. I was checking out the podcast a bit, listening to some segments and looking at some of the stuff you've written in the last few months. Not a lot. There's a few columns here and there. And I was looking at the site in general. And maybe with no other sports podcast maybe that I can think of, does the idea of politics and sports intersecting and having to deal with it more than ever now maybe become more relevant than maybe with yours? Because it's hosted by this bigger entity that has a more political interest, say, than ESPN or Sports Illustrated or uh, my my bedroom, extra bedroom, or wherever this podcast you know originates uh-huh. from. So how do you, how how is the team? What have your discussions been like? How do you want to approach it? It's still three years and ten months or eleven months left of what this what we've gotten a sneak preview of what life it's going to be like how how do you guys want to approach it what, what is the intersection and and when is it talking about sports and politics and when does that break off into just talking about politics on a sports show yeah so i mean i would definitely call out dave zyron's show as being more kind of explicitly political in its mission um than ours is and so if folks are interested in um you know, the intersection of sports and politics, that would be one to check out. And we're sort of in a kind of a a middle ground where it does feel a little bit weird 
now some weeks when the focus of the world and of Slate and of, you know, me is more on stuff going on outside of the realm of, of sports to be talking about, like, you know, the Sixers or <laughs> or something. Um, there are certain sports topics where the intersection with politics is natural and it doesn't feel like you're forcing anything. And right, like maybe the Patriots, are less so. the Patriots visiting the White House, for example, maybe would be one. And players yeah, opting and, out uh, or something like that. That's... We talked a couple of weeks ago about the immigration ban, the executive order, and its effect on sports. And we had on Tim Layden from Sports Illustrated, who had done a piece about Lopez Lamang, who carried the flag for the U.S. during the Beijing Olympics, a runner who was you know, from Sudan, a refugee. And we had a good conversation, I thought, about that and about other athletes who were affected, and that was a sports conversation, but also not a sports conversation. Um, you know, the day, uh, the week after the election, our show was very political and angry, I think, and then just as the weeks go on, sometimes the anger, you know, swells, and sometimes it's a bit, it abates, and you want to distraction um, and feel like it's always just kind of navigating that and trying to find a balance. You know, I can't remember who I was talking about this with, but maybe it was Chris Collinsworth who was saying that, you know, on NFL games, their announcers sort of feel like there's an obligation to talk about stuff that's in the news around the game, whether it's something as dumb as Deflategate or whether something as serious as like domestic violence committed perpetrated by one of the players. And the audience a lot of the time, if they're just like fans of the teams, they just like don't want to hear people uh, you know, who are calling the games address these bigger issues and the announcers don't want to address them either. And so you get this like really kind of stilted awkward conversation that doesn't make anyone happy. Actually, maybe it was a, maybe we had this conversation around Joe Mixon and the right. Sugar Bowl. Yeah. And what a shitty job uh, Brent Musburger did talking about it. Hmm. Um, anyway, okay. on our show, I feel like we want to talk about this stuff and our audience wants to hear about it. And so it's not an issue so much of like, oh, we got to f- figure out, you know, a way to dance around these issues it's it's more of like how how much you know in a given week what are the the right topics um and what are what are the right places to kind of inject political conversation and where does it feel like it's just not flowing naturally from the conversation i know for me in this show i just don't see any upside really for 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 us to do it because we're too small to have any kind of like influence, like whatever we would say for it to like make any difference on on any grand scale. And it, there's just really not a lot of upside for us in the sense that, you know, of the 60 million people that voted 
one way, and then there were 63 million people who voted another way. There's no reason for us to alienate either of those 60 million group, 60 million. You know what I mean? There's just, it isn't there for us. As shows get bigger and bigger and bigger, I see the upside for them, or I can, I would be able to justify it more, you know, whereas here. Well, couldn't you make the exact opposite argument that when a show is bigger than there, you don't want to risk alienating people? I'm not saying that's like the right attitude, but. I don't understand. I don't really yeah, understand I, the argument. For I understand that there's more smaller risk than than you wouldn't want to alienate. Like I guess it's risk Trump reward voters or whatever. I guess it's risk reward. Well, I didn't even specify that it's Trump voters. I wouldn't want to alienate. Maybe I wouldn't want to alienate Clinton voters either. You know, I don't. I don't know. I like I didn't vote for either of those candidates. You know, I, I generally I lean closer. I would. I'm sure a lot further right than you, but not that right. And you know, I'm probably a classic New York Republican, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't find anything redeemable about either candidate. They didn't, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I've been somewhat, I think uh, there's a certain segment of the population who feels, who had, who felt lost in the political, um, there, you know, you're either rooting against someone or, or not participating at all, you know, almost like Maybe even almost like watching the Super Bowl last week is like, well, am I going to root against the Falcons or am I just going to not root at all? Um, well, I would think of it more just personally. I'm not telling you what to do, but just do, you know, I just want to do the show that I want to do. And I feel like I'm at the, a place that allows me to do that. I'm not, I, I think it's like lucky to be able to say this, but I don't feel like I'm thinking about anything strategically. And it feels like there's an audience that wants to listen to what we want to do. So if you come to the decision that you don't want to talk about politics on your show, it's a reasonable decision. And just like, you know, do this, do the show that you want to do. Don't just do something because you feel like it is better strategically or because you there, there's something that you want to say desperately, but you're just like afraid of alienating people. Well, you know, we've always just tried to do a show that was interesting to us. And when you were on today, it was interesting to me to see where you stood about this. So we talked about it, you know, yeah. so it's not like I am uh, not willing to talk about what's interesting to me. That's always been the way it is. But what's not, I think, interesting to me or beneficial to me is to come on to the show um, and spend maybe the 30 minutes before we get into the guests and kind of, I guess, putting myself out there in a way that would upset either of the 60 million groups that we have established. Then we also have this other huge group that didn't make their opinion known at all. So who knows where they stand, right? This other group of 200 million people who didn't, who just took a buy, I guess. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I... Look, we're still going to do what I think is interesting here, but I'm also it's I'm, I, it's also a sports show. You know, it's never been about politics before, so it'd be really strange for it to be about it now as well. You know, <laughs> that seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm in, I was interested in what you said about Joe Mixon and um, Joe Mixon. I, I've been an Oklahoma Sooners fan since I was about nine years old because a friend who grew up down the street from me is about nine years older than me went went and played there. Um, yeah, and uh, so that was really part cool. of your strange menagerie of right. sports fandom. Yeah, and it was just uh, hey, there was this kid down the street who was really good, and he turned down 
a couple of scholarship offers to be a walk-on at OU, and he backed up Jason Belzer for four years and then came home. Um, but uh, I've known about this Joe Mixon thing from the from the jump, you know, from mm-hmm. the from the day it happened. And we had uh, Ryan Aber, who covers Oklahoma sports very well for the Oklahoman, on yeah. the show before the. Um, before Oklahoma played in the playoff game last year. And a big part of our conversation last year was, hey, is this going to be the week that this video comes out? Because we yeah. both knew that this video was going to be a lightning rod for Oklahoma football, for Joe Mixon, for the discussion of athletes and how to punish them. And um, I've been conflicted about it. for two, It's something that's weighed on me for, for two years. You know, a lot of, I think people have been lucky uh, to only have to deal with it from the day the video came out, you know, Oklahoma fans have been dealing with this for years. And, and how do you, what do you do? How do you decide what's right? What's wrong? I don't, I don't know the answer. I don't, but, um, I thought that Brent Musburger kind of just said, okay, Joe Mixon got a second chance. I'm rooting for him to make the most of it. Isn't, isn't that what he said? I didn't hear anything other than that. I, I don't know. I don't know. He if, said he's a good person. He, he said put all the attention on him. Um, so the issue is... But he was the that one in, that in was in the case, game, right? I mean, why would the attention be on anyone else in that moment? Well, to me, it felt like, again, back to my point before, where it was dealt with in kind of a perfunctory way, where it seemed like he felt an obligation to talk about it and didn't really put any thought into it. So I would rather, if you're not going to have a kind of thoughtful right. discussion or comment, just don't say anything. Okay. Rather than um, saying, like, you know, I I would push back a little bit on the idea that he didn't he didn't say anything wrong. But like, even in the best case, it was like totally banal. Then like, what are you? Why are you even taking? the time to say it. I guess just the the part that bugged me thinking back, and I don't have like total recall of like, what the exact phrasing was, but just the framing of it as like, this is something that happened to him as opposed to this is something that he perpetrated on someone else um, is kind of what I would quibble with. And in the way that Stoops talked about it as if the entire um, decision-making process and how it's, you know, spooled out was somehow beyond his control. He talked about it as if, um, you know, he didn't have any agency in the process, which was strange. I thought it was really strange that he kind of backed off and he said something like he might handle it differently. I was surprised by that. Well, he was like, yeah, it was like, he acted like, the initial decision had come down in like the 1930s or something. He was like, it was a different time. It was like, it was a year ago. Right. Well, yeah, two years ago. I guess it was different in the sense that it was a time where he was judging it before the public had the video, um, which seems to make such a difference. I don't know. One thing I'll say, I don't want to defend Oklahoma here because I still, after all these years of thinking about it, don't even know where I stand as cowardly as that might be. But well, it's a they, complicated it's issue. It's very so complicated, I think. It I, I think. The, well of you to not have a hardened position either way. Each case is different, too. I will say that they did decide to publish punish him almost exactly the same way that the courts decided to publish punish him. Why does he keep saying publish? Uh, they punished him exactly, basically exactly the same way the court did. I don't know 
if that makes it better or worse. It's just something that has complicated it more for me. Uh, it's interesting what you said about how you, what you heard from Brent, and it's been a few months now, I guess. So neither of us, I guess, have an exact rem- – like we can't remember every word he said. But what I remember hearing that night was simply Oklahoma has given Joe Mixon a second chance. I'm a fan of second chances, and I hope that he makes the best of this second chance. And that's all I heard. You know, I didn't hear he that he wasn't that he was right or that he was wrong or that he should or he should. I didn't hear any of that. I just heard this is what it is. He's got a second chance. I hope I can read what he said. I, I looked it up. Okay, let's hear it. He says, "We've talked to the coaches. They all swear that the young man is doing fine." So that was kind of what I was talking about with the framing that he's doing fine. Okay, um, folks, he is just one of the best. And let's hope, given a second chance by Bob Stoops in Oklahoma, let's hope that this young man makes the most of his chance and goes on to have a career in the National Football League. So the back half of it, I think, is totally fine. The framing around it of he's one of the best and he's doing fine, as if our concern should be on his well-being, I think, is where Brent screwed up. Yeah, I would agree. Those, I guess, you know, it goes back to what we heard. Because I, I didn't remember him saying he's just the best. At all, I don't remember that at all. I don't even know. Right, what he, and then what when he means Brent came that. back in the towards the end of the game and was, I guess somebody in the truck had told him, "Hey, this is blowing up. You should say something." Or um, I don't know. Maybe that's not how it happened, but perhaps that's how it happened. And he he was very defensive, and he was. What yep. I think he remembered saying was what you remembered hearing him say, which is, "All I said is I." believe in second chances like why get off my back and then people you know myself included heard him say he's one of the best he's doing fine do you think that he was forced out uh i have no idea i i wouldn't speculate on that i think it is interesting though because um he is he was so sharp in terms of play-by-play and how he called the game much more so than Vern Lundquist in in Vern's kind of last years, and yet Vern's persona was so lovable and was such like a warm presence, and it sort of became like sort of a mascot for the SEC that everybody loved having him around, even if the way that he called the game was not up to the standard, I think, that Vern had set earlier in his career, that he got this kind of like valedictory that was like really great and heartwarming. And yeah, with Brent, it seemed like this is, you might disagree. Like whenever I heard him call SEC networking or whatever, it felt like he was totally on top of everything. Like he could get all the players names, right? You felt like kind of in good hands as a viewer, but there's just not the kind of warm feelings around him. And so his departure did feel like pretty unceremonious. And again, I don't really know what went into it, but that was a pretty striking difference considering like what a long and pretty storied career that Brent Musburger had. Yeah, I do agree that his the end of his career seemed very abrupt and unceremonious. I think that is a very good way to describe it. Um, well, he had the incident with, you know, Catherine Webb and, um, you know, A.J. McCarron during that right. Bama game. Mm-hmm. And I think... There were just a couple of 
moments that he had towards the end of his career where he kind of got attention for reasons that a broadcaster doesn't want to get attention for, and there wasn't really anything that I can remember to really change that narrative. There wasn't any like kind of warm, heartwarming Brent Musburger moments towards the end. He kind of got shuffled you know, shoved into, uh, you know, a conference-affiliated network, and he just kind of faded away a bit. Yeah, yeah, you're not you're not wrong at all about that. Richard Deitch insists that, for all of his reporting, he he seems to believe Musburger that he wasn't forced out. That it's more about Musburger's old man. Like, yeah, I, he's what is he like late seventies? Yeah, I want to say seventy-eight. I heard. Yeah, so the guy the guy had a really long run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was born in 1939, so he is age 77. He will turn 78 this year. You right. know, it's interesting that as we finish this, that the last few topics we talked about were complicated ones that didn't seem to have right or wrong answers, and it seems like that just kind of reflects the world I live in all of a sudden, that... Whatever the conversation, more and more the conversations seem to be complicated, more and more complicated than they ever were before. So I don't know what that means, but that's just the way it felt. Uh, you can find Josh on Twitter. He's at Josh underscore L-E-V-I-N. Uh, the podcast Hang Up and Listen comes out every Monday um, and is a great listen every week. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. And, of course, he's an editor and writer for Slate. Dot com, which you can find on the internet. Imagine that. Uh, yeah. And can I ask you? Can I ask you a question before sure. we go? Actually, yes. Anything. I don't you know like. yeah. if you want to keep if you want to keep this in or not. Up to you. But yeah, no. Keep given our in. conversation. Yeah. Does the level of political discussion on our show feel like at all alienating to you, uh, or do you have you enjoyed that like since the election? Only the first one after the election, I couldn't get through it. And I, I, I don't think it was as much about you guys as it was about the totality of everything that I had heard those days. You know, yeah. just in general, I was, I, was had, a lot. I had reached overload. And I think I was going to my, po- my, to my phone and putting my headphones on and going to podcasts, trying to get away from that a little bit. For sure. You know, so there was a few... And it wasn't even about anything that you guys said or anything like that because I, res- I respect everyone's opinion right now. I don't think anyone is well, – well, some, like sometimes some people, people wrong, don't want to but... listen to a segment on hockey if they're not a hockey fan. Right. Sometimes you want to skip an episode for, for various reasons. To, be, to listen to a podcast, you don't have to listen to every uh, segment of every episode, much you know, less than every episode. So, yeah, um, but that was the well, only well time. Well within your rights. Yeah, that was the only time since then it – it's been what I'd expect. I think that it's just something that's, you know, for a long time, I think we've lived in a, in a country where politics was a C or D topic sometimes, unless you were with a guy who was into politics. And I think that in this, this election cycle has brought out a side in all of us where we're more opinionated. Like I was saying yesterday at dinner, I think like, has anyone ever known who the nominee for education secretary was before this time? Like, has anyone ever given this any thought ever? Not before? usually topic A. No, so it's like it's a different. I think it's a different world, and we're we're talking Arnie about Arnie Duncan could ball though. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I actually went. I went and looked at the previous, and I'm like, I don't think I know any of these people. I was like, all right, maybe I recognize that one. I'm like, no, I don't. I, I don't know. And I, I was in at my career was in education before uh, my disease got out of control, and I uh, was shunned uh, to the sidelines. But no, I just it's it's a different time. I think so. No, it was just that first one, like you said, was very angry, and you guys were. I guess it was just I just needed something else, and it wasn't even about what you guys were doing. It was just about, you know, I had reached a limit. Fair, fair take. Is All there, right. Well, is there anything else for having me on? As always, is there anything else you want to plug? Anything I didn't give out correctly, or you want to clarify? No, that's uh, you. You did it all. You said it all. Thank you. What, so much. what more could I want? <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Josh. Thank you. All right, I want to thank Josh Levine for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate that. Had fun talking with Josh. Really interesting uh, subjects there. Before we get to Fred Siegel from Freezing Cold Takes, I want to do a quick book club update. We started last week uh, talking about how there's so many books put out in anticipation of selling them for Christmas that there's a little bit of a lull and that we have some books on the radar for March and April, but not really much right now. So we thought we'd look back at some of our favorite books uh, over the course of the book club and uh, re-recommend them or talk about them and uh, quickly before we head into the next interview. Uh, a book I was thinking about last night, I was watching Duke in North Carolina for a few minutes last night, and uh, Duke won the game over North Carolina, and it reminded me of one of our very first book club books of the month. The, la- the last great game, Duke versus Kentucky and the 2.1 seconds that changed college basketball. It's a book by Gene Wojciechowski. There's kind of a cool story uh, behind this book becoming the book club book of the month. So we were really new at the time the podcast was. We were just kind of building ourselves up a little bit. And I reached out to Gene and told him the process. And he was like, yeah, you know, I would probably be interested but I don't really have any books right now. And he kind of said yes, but kind of said no at the same time. And I wanted to read the book anyway. And I think they were doing a sale on iTunes. I just noticed uh, that it was like maybe four or five bucks. So I, I bought the ebook, and I wrote Gene back and I said, hey, no big deal. Don't worry about the book. Uh, I was able to get an ebook. Um, just promise me you'll come on and, and we'll do this. And he wrote back and he's like, okay. And then I guess he felt bad because a couple days later, um, I got a book in the mail uh, from Gene and he even signed it. He wrote, uh, to Steve, one of the remaining few who still reads books, thanks for choosing the last great game for your book club. And he signed it. Uh, and he wrote me an email saying that he felt guilty that we were going to you know, promote the book and that he didn't have one to send me. So that was really nice of him to do that. I think... I think, if I remember correctly, he went to the store and bought this uh, to sign it and sign it in the mail. So that was really cool. And then there's a funny story about Gene. So all that goes great. You know, the the uh, the promotion of the book, uh, there was a lot of buzz on our Twitter about it. I know Gene noticed that. 
you know, it was the book club was really active at the time, and it, it went really well. And the interview with Gene went really well. I loved it. So since then, I've probably asked Gene to be on this podcast, I don't know, 10 times, 12 times, and he always says no. It's the most amazing thing. Now, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, how usually what happens is if someone doesn't want to be on the podcast, they just ignore you. I mean, that is usually what happens. Um, Sometimes people will write and they'll say, you know, no, thank you. Um, But most of the time you just get ignored. Gene consistently (laughs) has turned me down. Um, It looks like the last time I reached out um, to him was in August of 2015. uh, And he wrote back. Okay, so he was on February 21st, 2012. Season 2, Episode 7. So we're on Season 6. No, Season 7? 7? 6? I I don't know. Season 7, Episode 3. So five seasons ago... (laughs) And I wrote him a pitch, and he wrote back, Steve, I'm at a football seminar seminar in Charlotte Monday and Tuesday and then headed to Oregon for the remainder of the work week. If that changes, I'll let you know. We'll get it done eventually. And I've gotten emails from him like that for for years. July 1st, 2015. Thanks for the kind email. Sadly, I'm, under, sadly I'm underwater with work and travel, so we're going to have to wait on the podcast. Hope you understand. Take care, but we'll get it done soon enough. So he's unbelievably good at, you know, saying, yeah, any day now, you know, we're going to do this. And uh, I have gotten the idea that we're never, (laughs) never going to do it. I'm sure Uh, Gene is never coming on again, but it was fun. And I love the book. Again, the book is called uh, The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky and the 2.1 Seconds that Change Basketball. Uh, and it's a great book about the uh, Christian Leitner game. So check that out if you're interested. All right, we're going to take a break and come right back with Fred Siegel from Freezing Cold Takes. All right, our next guest is from Miami. He's a graduate of Florida. And he has one of the coolest Twitter handles out there, at Old Takes Exposed, and now a website that's part of the comeback. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Fred Siegel. What's going on, Fred? Hey, how's it going? Did you put that Florida fight song on for me? Just for you, buddy. Ah, uh, great. I was wondering if that was your fight song for the, uh, for the podcast. No, we bring up. Uh, we try to. Bring, <laughs> we try. Your lead into the podcast, and uh, I, I was I was excited to hear it. Yeah, we try to bring everyone into their fight songs when possible. Not everyone has one, you know. Sometimes, you know, people uh, don't affiliate with a college, or like like Joe Buck left early, <laughs> like left school early for broadcasting. Like he went to um, Indiana, but he left early. But I'll still bring him into the Indiana one sometimes uh, when he's on. And, uh, you know, then other people go to, like, if we have a hockey guy who's from some Canadian university. I don't know that they mm-hmm. do, do fight songs. 
So that, no, like so, it's, amateur sports in Canada is, it just isn't. No, it's not like the United States. No, no one has it, that kind of pride for their school in, in that regard. So you know, sometimes you get a new follower and you look like, oh, I wonder who's following me. And mm-hmm. I looked yesterday at a new follower. I look and I was like, oh, Fred's following me. And then I thought about <laughs> it for a second and I said, oh no. It won't, yeah, be, it, yeah. won't, it won't be long now until, until I'm exposed. Well, uh, I don't scroll through. It, that's in the, one, of the, one of the myths that, uh, that people think about when I, when I follow them. Uh, I, I don't scroll through it that much um, on a regular basis where I just scroll through my feed because um, I have too much stuff going on. So most of the time when I'm finding uh, content through Twitter, it's through the search. And through people notifying me, but not often will I scroll through the feed just regularly and find, oh, this could be something that that could be uh, in the future used for for the um, for the feed and, and save it. I, I do that when people remind me. But uh, yeah, so it's not that big. Of a deal. And also, when I like something, it's because I actually like it. People think I'm saving it. Uh, I see. I I usually use likes for saves. That's my main yeah. reason for it. You know, it's, I have like fifty thousand likes. It's interesting because I started following the feed last week, and then Sunday was like the day, like a game that was literally born for this kind of a thing. You know? Oh yeah. I it, mean, was, it was the perfect storm. The perfect. I mean, there could, <laughs> I'm sure there. You you probably had so many freezing cold takes that you didn't know what to do with them tell me tell me about how tell me about you watching that game and tell me a little go let's put, put us in your mind a little bit as you're watching the super bowl sunday and okay well, the stages of how things kind of unfold through the day on sunday well, that's a great question because this is this is exactly i go through the whole thing well i i have a website now freezingcoldtakes.com and it's through the comeback network. We love the comeback. And it's um we, I post usually one or two articles a day um, cuz I still have a full-time job. It's really hard and I, I what I do is I'll you know a lot of the writers from the com- who are employed by the comeback who write for awful announcing and the comeback cuz right, we the know comeback the owns awful announcing. Mm-hmm. They'll write some of the stuff for me. Um but what happens those in-game takes, those in-game are, are, are always a hit. And the first one I did that really, it, it, I, I started it in like November of this year, or November 2016, the site came up. Right. And just a list of takes when this, when this team was down by this many points. I did it for one of the games, I think it was Arkansas versus Virginia Tech in the bowl game. Arkansas might have been up by three touchdowns at the half. And then they came back, and then Virginia Tech came back and killed them in the second half and won. And I just posted them. I posted the tweets from the first half where everyone was making fun of Virginia Tech, everyone was happy for Arkansas, and it just blew up. And it was, it was, a, it was a belk bowl. And I was just like, these, these things blow up. Well, so that, in the national championship game, was the original perfect storm. Because... It was Alabama up 14 zip, and it looked like they were going to roll through Clemson. And it, and Alabama is whenever Alabama scores a touchdown to start the game, everyone goes, "Oh, they're unbeatable. They're the best. Can't beat Alabama. It's over." And there were just so many of those. So I did that, and it was it. It got more clicks than probably any of the 
other articles I post three times five. Like it went through the Clemson message ports and must have got like a hundred thousand views. <laughs> <laughs> it was like so I knew the Super Bowl. I told I didn't go to the Super Bowl party. I told my wife I'm working on the Super Bowl because of these type of things, and I just wanted to make ideas come into my head during it. But I wanted to make content for the site. Um, I already had pre-prepared uh, a bunch of tweets for uh, and um, and content, just like quotes and stuff about each team that I was going to use if it was just a regular game. Right. And some of them were like one of them was Matt Ryan never get to the super, never win a Super Bowl. One of them was just about the Falcons are cursed or something like that. Um, one of them was about Brady earlier in the year, um, and they're not going to win this year. They, they weren't they, they weren't anything over the top great. Um, but then I was going to create some stuff as it went along. Well, as soon as the Super Bowl started, and the Falcons went started. They may have been up fourteen nothing, and that's immediately whenever any game. For, Whenever I'm watching a game, I have a ton of I have a ton of saved files, or maybe ones that I deleted from games where someone went up 14 zip, and I just immediately start collecting. So at that time, I start collecting and collecting. So when the Falcons went up 14 zip, I immediately started collecting tweets and putting them into the post right away. Um, and then it was halftime. I may have been 21 three. Uh, at halftime, is great because I have all the time in the world to get them. Yeah, long halftime, And too. put them in. Yeah, Super Bowl's and, perfect. Right. So, one, But once it got to 28-3, to three, I personally thought it was over. So I started moving on to writing the Falcons ones. So I have about – I was typing up the whole Falcons one. I may have did one with Colin Cowherd. It was back and forth on the Falcons all year. I did that one like that. There were about three of them. And I – and. I already had all the stuff in the file, so I, I posted them. I, put, I, I had them all ready to go. But as soon as the Patriots maybe went back, it went, when the Patriots got it within two touchdowns maybe, um, I think that was it. That's when I started going back. Maybe 28-12 at that yeah, point. Yeah, That's when I started going back and, and started bringing in more t- Patriots. Okay. I, and I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And each, and they kept coming back, so I wasn't stopping. So I just kept doing it the whole rest of the time. When it went to overtime, I, but, well, not just that. Well, let me stop there. Okay. Once the Patriots got to, once the Patriots got to like twenty-eight, it was, twenty. It was, it was twenty-eight. I had so many. It, I had so many <laughs> that I went back and I, I started finding ones when the I started I started finding ones where everyone said the Falcons were going to choke in case the Falcons won. Right, if they won overtime. So, gotcha, so during yeah. like the point where it was <laughs> where like like Falcons were down, were up eight up until like the overtime. I started doing those. Then when it got to overtime, I just everyone knew the Falcons were going to lose. Right. They just didn't have it. It was just like it, you just. I just had resigned to the fact that. So I wrote up the article. I wrote up the, the post, um, and I just and I and as the Patriots were driving down the field, I just put in the score because if they scored, it was going to be thirty four twenty eight. If they won, and I wrote up the whole thing, put it all in everything, and the second they scored, I posted it. So there was about uh, thirty five, forty, fifty. And then I just went back and found more and more. I had different ideas. But after I posted that, gave me a lot of time to uh, to go back. And I, I did one about everyone was saying it. Tom Brady was deflated 
I also did oh, one gosh. about how everyone was making fun of him about Trump. Oh, right, right. About yeah. 50 people. Yeah. And then there was also one where that people were telling it to say to put in Jimmy Garoppolo. Oh. And uh, I did all of those. Uh, I just stayed up really late. I, I must have not gotten too much sleep. But uh, that that's how I did that. But it, it was just a surprise. The whole time I was locked and loaded, the whole game. I wasn't even uh, paying attention to, like, strategy or anything that was going on. It was just doing that the whole time. And um, and a lot of people, I kept getting notifications. Like, everybody was notifying me about whether uh, posting and mentioning me, this is going to be great for all things, this would be great. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't even look at them. I was so focused. But th- this time it worked out for me. The one time it didn't work out for me where I was really upset about it because I would have had something great was that Cowboys game against the Packers. Uh, uh, Packers went up by a lot. Yeah. Everybody was calling for Tony Romo. I had about thir- I had a hundred Tony Romo, uh, and also everyone was ripping on the Cowboys, but they didn't end up winning. So it just Damn blew it. Rogers. It, it blew you got, it. You got me. you yeah. got Rogers I, on that one. Uh, yeah, I got robbed in that game because <laughs> I was spending the whole entire game doing it, and it just it was useless. Let me ask they, you this. They, Sorry to cut you off. So, Let me ask you this about the Super Bowl before we get too far away from it. So last year's Super Bowl was somewhat anticlimactic. I mean, the, the Broncos had it in hand mostly. The year before was a great one, the the Seahawks and the Patriots, the Malcolm Butler game. And you watched that Super Bowl a few years ago, try to think back, as just a, a dude who I was watching the Super Bowl that day. And then this Sunday you were watching it as a dude who's watching the Super Bowl trying to figure out what's going to be the best column for freezing cold takes. What 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 do you like better? Did you did you have fun? Did you enjoy this? Did you did you miss the days of just sitting back there and just being a guy on the couch saying, "Man, they should have just given it to Lynch," you know? Or how how was it personally for you to be uh, oh, in this I, other I like context? This way, it, it, significantly better. I, I like this so. I don't even care that much about the Super Bowl, even that Super Bowl. I'm just a casual observer. I just sit there and watch. I, it, it, it didn't really mean much to me. This is so much better. I enjoy this. I love finding them in the middle of the game. And I've gotten real good at it because I've done it so much. There were right. so many games that I had practice doing. And it's funny, speaking of that game, because it, they blow up so much, I started this thing where I do this day in cold take history. So the day of that game, I posted, I, found, I went back and found all those tweets from that game, and I made a post. And you, you'll find, you can find it on my, on my website. Uh, or, well, someone else wrote it for me. Um, but... Oh, did you do yesterday? Yeah, did you do yeah. So, so the, the day of the game, which was February third, I think it was, uh-huh. or February one. It may have been February one. Like two years ago today, this game, and then I posted some from that game. Um, and I also did it with the national championship. This one blew up so much. Uh, the national championship between Florida State and Auburn. Right. Auburn went up twenty-one-three. And everyone was ripping on Florida State because no one really liked them at the time because they had the whole Jameis Winston thing going on. And, uh, and that must have went through all the Florida State message boards because that was a big-time, big-time uh, performer. So I started doing a lot of that when there was a big game going on um, or it was like an anniversary. Uh, I'll bring it back. Do you have more fun kind of – like I'm a huge Saints fan and like I had to kind of – I kind of had a – make a decision a few years ago about what my relationship with Twitter was going to be during Saints games because sometimes I can let my emotions get the best of me. So mostly my decision was that I'm staying away from it for the most part. Um, 
do you do you do you enjoy is it do you think it works better when it's when you're getting a fan who's just passionate and kind of aggravated and venting a little bit maybe not even believing what they're writing or do you enjoy more uh someone who's observing it as a reporter or a columnist or someone in the media and is kind of just putting their their you know their opinions out there in real time and maybe getting a little bit carried away or swept up in the moment well it's both are great um i think the fans are good most of the time i don't use them because um they don't test well like i when i started the feed people don't like the random fan stuff um they don't they like know to them. see the, yeah because yeah, it's easy it's too easy like i could find a cold take from anybody right literally anybody about anything. Um, but I like them. If it's, a, if it's someone, who is a, someone who is more prominent, who's acting like a fan, it's great. I like them both. Uh, it, it, the, the ones where people are, are fans and they're talking real, a lot of crap about their team and then they, they change their mind in two seconds. And great one example of that was that Tennessee game where they won on the Hail Mary. I mean, people just were ripping on Butch Jones. And then and it was the same the week before, two weeks before against Florida, it was the same thing. And then, um, and then when they won, it was just like, oh, he's the best. I take back everything I said. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but the, the media ones are good because they get snarky. And they get mad and at you. They, they, some, some get mad at me. Some don't. Some uh, ignore it. Uh, but they get snarky. And they get... Um, they're on their high horse sometimes, and people love it. Who's when, gotten the most pissed at you? Uh, well, hmm. There's one guy, you know, I don't know his name. I, I keep forgetting his name, but he denounced me um, <laughs> <laughs> in a very public way, and I posted it. Um, he And then he had to defend himself about it, but he, I forgot his name, but he, he's a basketball guy. He, he has a decent, pretty hefty amount of followers, but he wrote something like, if anybody mentions old takes exposed to me, they're blocked automatically. Oh. Yeah. So I, I mean, I posted it to my feed. I, I took a screen or screenshot or someone sent me a screenshot and posted it right to my feed. And, um, and I posted it and I was just like, beware everyone. But, uh, um, People get mad. Uh, I don't. Every a lot of people get mad. Some people get mad on the side, on the side DMs. <laughs> <laughs> some people will. Uh, some people will come on. Like I've had big time people in the media game will come on to the side trying to explain away their because they know I'm going to post something about them, their take. I've had that happen before. Well, you know, I see numerous the times. I seen a conversation you're having with Pete Prisco, I think, when I was uh, looking. I love him. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are kind of talking about the NFL draft, and it got me thinking about when maybe this might be unfair, in a way. Like I was trying to put myself in the taker's shoes for a minute, and kind of like, now my overall opinion is that this is just fun, kind of, and that mm-hmm. no matter what, you should just kind of embrace it as fun. But then I was looking at the other side and saying, you know, sometimes. Maybe this isn't fair in the sense that there's a little bit of context that can be easily ignored. And he was kind of talking about Ezekiel Elliott and his grade for Ezekiel Elliott and how in the NFL draft he put Elliott 
as a D, you know, and that the reason is not because of Elliott and what he would do on the field, but because of where they picked in the draft and who was picked after and kind of the context of a running back who's going to have a really short life shelf life versus a Jalen Ramsey type who maybe won't have the success in year one, but by year four still might have seven years of top end play left where Elliott is only going to have two or three. Um, we've seen how hard they rode him this year. You know, how much, how many years does he have carrying the ball at that level? And I was thinking just a little bit about context there and where NFL draft stuff, things like that could be a little unfair. Do you look at it that way at all, or do you just think, no, this is just all fun in general, and any take is just as potentially cold as another? Um, no, I, I agree with you. I think it can be unfair sometimes. Uh, the way I look at it is, uh, well, I also feel sometimes feel bad during the draft ones. Now, it doesn't stop me. I still do it anyway. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> because these, these are the guys' jobs. And they're going to be wrong sometimes. And they put right. themselves out there and they do evaluations and then they're wrong. And it looks like, and people will write um, the responses from some of the people. are like, how can you follow this idiot and things like that, which I don't feel that way at all. And, uh, you know, guys like Pete Prisco, he can be wrong all the time. And then there's Matt Miller, who, who and, 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 and the funny thing is, is these two guys, especially Pete, Pete Prisco, Matt Miller, those guys are on my feet a lot. And they are because they are they they are more than willing to espouse their opinions so much, um, so it's like they put themselves out there so much, so they're going to have more content available. But they're honest. I, I like Pete Prisco so much because he's honest. Because I just don't feel like there's an agent in his head. I don't feel like there's like he has that about him. I feel like he's honestly just looking at a guy. He doesn't care about his hype or anything, and says it. Now he can be stubborn, and he can be uh, a little like crotch, cranky. But uh, he, he certainly is someone I like and from that regard. Matt Miller, too. Uh, but, yeah, it can be unfair. Context, the way I look at it is context on Twitter. It, it, Twitter is, like, really yeah. void of context. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, if you're, gonna be, if you're just going to be in it, then you're just uh, – you're going to have to – you understand that people are just going to take you out of context all the time. Um, and when I post something, sometimes I don't know the context. If I do know the context, um, I'll try to say it, but it's hard. Like when I just look at the one tweet, I don't know. So sometimes that does happen. It happens. And then if someone has an argument about it, I'll retweet it. Uh, but, but people, people get it though. People get it. They see, they judge people on the, on the face of the tweet. Um, like someone saying that, like if the Heat won the Heat, because I'm a Heat fan, the Heat won 11 in a row. If they won 20, 20 in a row, and I give a take about if they end up winning 20 in a row, and I give a take from a month ago. People saying the Heat are tanking; they're going to lose 80 games this year. Nobody thinks that person's stupid because nobody expected the Heat to do this. Right. At least right now, um, people see it; they 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 understand it. Sometimes uh, it, they're just for the they're completely for fun because nobody expected it to happen. Um, and other times they're, they were just a bad take to start and people get it. Um, the draft stuff, people have a lot more, most people, the, the people, the people have a lot more tend to have a lot more, uh, deference. They tend to, to the draft people because it's really hard to tell. Some don't, but those people don't have deference to the draft people anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, they're it's all like, going to get mad anyway. You think about uh, all the money that the team spent to make draft picks, and they only hit at 50%. And then these poor guys that they're out there giving their opinions uh, with so much less information than the teams have who can still only hit at a 50% rate. Um, and I thought that yeah. was pretty interesting. It's at Old Takes Exposed on Twitter. The guy who runs it is Fred. We're talking to him here today. There's a website now um, which is associated with the comeback. Uh, we've had a bunch of people from comeback and awful announcing on. They've been really good to us. We love uh, uh, Matt Yoder and I are big Saints fans. We He comes on every year to talk Saints uh, with me and update me on the sites. And uh, we've had... Uh, Andrew Buckholtz on, a bunch of guys from the sites who love it a lot. And this is uh, a great, great new venture for them. I was really excited to uh, have Fred on. I wanted to ask you one more thing, Fred, and it's like slipping my mind because we got so into that draft part. It's going to piss me off because as soon as we hang up, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, that's what it was, and I'm going to blow it. Um, let me ask you this, and hopefully while you're answering, it will come back, and if it doesn't, I'll let you go. You got the website going now, and you're talking about how much it takes to kind of get the Get the uh, get the post up and to generate the content. Where do you see this going in terms of the Twitter feed versus the website and the balance as you move forward? Well, it's it's, it's I have to maintain the balance. Uh, it's the balance is um, is something that's important. The Twitter Twitter will always be there because it's easy for me. I mean, it's not. I wouldn't say easy, like you, you have to get a feel for how to do it and what people like, but to find a post doesn't take me long at all. I can do it when I'm on a bathroom break at work um, and things like that. And also people are sending me things. Uh, the balance that people don't like, I guess, on Twitter is posting the articles versus posting the, the um, tweets. And what I try to do is I'm, I'm not really trying to post some, a tweet, uh, an article that could just be a tweet. Like, there's got to be more there. Um, like the Sabres won last night with the Sabres down 4-1 right. to the Sharks. Um, that, that's a collection of tweets. That's like 10 of them. And it just best, fits better in the article. But if it was just one tweet, like, I try, I'm not going to write an article to make someone click. And just say, uh, writer, writer, write, writer makes funny tweet. And then you have to click on it and look at the tweet. You know, things like that. Um, some people, a few people have gotten mad about posting the articles. And frankly, I don't see why because they don't have to click on it. Uh, but most of it, I'm, I've been keeping the tweets going. Uh, but the t- Twitter doesn't really. Uh, Twitter is not going to get you. Um, you can't just stay on Twitter and that's it. I mean, I'm trying to expand and just see where it goes. I have a full time job, and and so it's it's not like something that I'm. Hustling to to earn a living with, so I can experiment and and do a lot more things. Um, but you know, just s- slowly producing more and see where it goes. That's that's really the plan. But Twitter, I'll be I'll continuously keep tweeting, pretty much the same way, um, except there'll be articles posted um, every so often. Well, let's lay it all out there again for everyone. It's at Old Takes Exposed on Twitter. The website is thecomeback.com slash freezing cold takes. And uh, you can also find Fred. He's at F-R-I-Z-Z-5-2-7 on Twitter. Uh, we'll find out some Florida takes probably. No, that's, uh, all, that's all gator stuff. That's all, all I do. <laughs> I don't really post that much on that feed. I never really was much of a poster of my own stuff. Um, I never really just – I never got a feel for it. 
Um, yeah, but that's mostly Gator stuff. I, I'm I'm a little bit too yeah I'm I'm as big a UF fan as there there ever is. Have you is, exposed uh, yourself yet? What? Have you exposed yourself yet? Yeah, well, I exposed myself a couple times with the LSU game. I tell you that, <laughs> man. I thought, but uh, <laughs> but that was a good one. Um, I, I would have exposed myself. You see, you see, the problem is you'll never get me on. You'll rarely ever get me on something where the Gators are winning by a lot. And I'll post something like we've won because I, I just don't. I, I'm I never jinx it, mm-hmm. until, so I'll never say the Gators are going to win. Uh, so it has to be the other way around, which it was in that game. Well, listen, Fred, uh, I love it. Thank you so much for all the time. Is there anything else you wanted to promote? Any any other thing you wanted to mention that I didn't? Uh, no, just uh, yeah. Go on to the feed, follow, and uh, keep looking at the website. Look at all the content we've had about a hundred posts already. Uh, and um, just continue. We're going to continue posting more and more things and trying more and more stuff. All right. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. And just remember my kindness in the future. If, uh, uh, yeah, of course. If I, uh, yeah. but no, there's no free passes. <laughs> all right. By the way. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks buddy. so much for having right. me. I appreciate it. See you later. Right, take care. All right, I want to thank Fred Siegel for being on the podcast today. I also want to thank Josh Levine from Slate. Don't forget you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on our SoundCloud page, www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters or chase down Don. Congratulate him on the new job at Don Lake Sports. Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com, especially if I owe you a book. Don't forget to check out the Lonely End of the Ring podcast. Last week we had Michael Russo and 9 and 90 with Rob O'Gara. You can find that also on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash lonelyringpod. Twitter at lonelyringpod. Email lonelyringpod at gmail.com. And both podcasts can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts. All right, one last thing for me today. I thought about a bunch of different things to talk about, whether it be the epic collapse of the Falcons, uh, some kind of Paula story, um, the incredible nature of the Trump presidency and how suddenly everyone is an expert on education secretaries. Uh, but forget all that. I wanted to talk about something fun I'm doing, and that's rewatching The Sopranos. It's not the first time. It's not the second time. It's not the third time. To be honest, I don't know how many times I've watched some of these episodes, but it's never less brilliant. It's just that first season, when you start watching it and you start getting into that world, it just it sucks me in like nothing else. And I don't want to break away from it. And when the first season ends, I'm ready to just roll right into the second. And it's interesting about The Sopranos. And if you never watched it, one of the reasons I recommend it even more than I would have when it was on is because the worst thing about it was always, always how long it took to get from one chunk of episodes to the next. 
And in this world of binge-watching a show that is completed, you don't have that. You can watch all 85 or so episodes in 85 hours if you got the time. Um, and it's just so amazing. And I was just watching. Uh, from this point on, there might be some spoilers. So if you haven't watched it, you're thinking about it, thanks for listening today. But I was watching the end of season two yesterday. And it was the episode uh, with Janice, when Janice kills uh, Richie April. And The Sopranos does something amazing. And that is, right before they're going to kill a character or something disastrous is going to happen to them, they build them up a little bit for you. Like, in the, in, in the episode and a half leading up to Richie's death, a lot of it is surrounded around the relationship between Richie and Janice. And they start looking into buying this $800,000 house. And they're going to get married. And Tony throws them a engagement party. And Janice is buying her dress and planning the wedding. And all in the meantime, Richie is getting tough and deciding that he's going to maybe take a run at Tony. And he's doing this through Junior. And Junior ultimately backs out and tells him it's not going to happen. And the word gets back to Tony through Junior that Richie was trying this. And, you know, Tony tells Sil, you know, take care of it. And then next thing you know, boom, uh, Richie punches Janice in the face and she comes back with the revolver and kills him. Two shots to the chest. And it's just amazing Sopranos. It's just like they spent all this time building up the Janice and Richie April relationship. And the house and the wedding and the dress and the engagement party. And then, bam, it all changes in a flash when Janice puts two bullets in the guy and kills him. And it's just amazing. It's just an amazing show. Uh, And every time I watch another episode, I remember why it's the greatest show of all time.